Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Thanks for joining us. Today on the program, one-shot approval. The Janssen vaccine is the first single-dose COVID-19 vaccine to be authorized in Canada. The other four require two doses. It can be stored and transported at refrigerated temperatures between 2 and 8 degrees Celsius for at least three months, giving greater flexibility in how it can be distributed across Canada. The people watching at home right now who are looking forward to getting their shot, your turn is coming. Canada approves Johnson & Johnson's single-shot COVID-19 vaccine, the fourth in Canada's arsenal. How fast will it get here? And millions more doses are arriving early as Canada's vaccine timeline accelerating. And will the federal government transfer billions of new dollars to the provinces for health care? We find out when Canada's health minister, Patty Haidu, joins us today. Then, vaccine confusion. Each vaccine has unique characteristics, and Health Canada's review has confirmed that the benefits of all these vaccines outweigh the potential risks. With new vaccines arriving in bigger waves, why is there still so much confusion about who should get what, when? Are some vaccines actually better than others? The Deputy Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, Dr. Howard New, joins us today, plus the UK formula. We do believe we have the, the, the supplies in place to keep up that rhythm and that uh, timetable. How did the United Kingdom become a world leader in vaccination rates? What did they do right and what could Canada learn from them? We've got an exclusive interview today with the UK vaccine minister Nadim Zahawi. All that plus who knew what when about the allegations of inappropriate behavior at the highest levels of the military. We'll take that up on the scrum with special guest NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. This is question period. Let's go get some answers. Well, it's a game changer. The approval of the Johnson & Johnson single-dose vaccine on Friday, making Canada the first country to have four approved vaccines, wasn't the only game-changing vaccine news to come. Canada will now also receive 8 million doses of the Moderna, Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines by the end of March. That's not the 6 million that's been long expected. Now, Canada has ordered 10 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. When will they arrive is a question, though. And will all the arrivals of these new vaccines and the decision to extend the time between the first and second doses to four months, will all that accelerate Canada's target to get every Canadian vaccinated ahead of September? But with optimism comes questions. Are some vaccines more effective than others? Will Canada soon have vaccine passports? And meantime, as the country's thinking about the recovery, the provinces are asking the federal government to increase the health transfer by $28 billion a year. Is that going to happen in the new budget? Let's find out. Lots to ask. We are joined now by the health minister, Patty Haidu. Great to have you back on the program. Let's just start with this, the big news about Johnson & Johnson, the Janssen vaccine. Um, do you, can you tell us when it will arrive and in how many doses? Well, I know my colleague, Minister Anand's working on that right now. I mean, we didn't anticipate to get Johnson & Johnson doses until the second quarter, so after the end of March. But having said that, of course, uh, procurement is always working on trying to get a better line of sight of earlier doses, and we certainly hope that she'll be successful because, of course, the more vaccines, the better we are off. Uh, Minister, like, is this recalibrating the timeline? I know the Prime Minister hinted that Every Canadian who wants a vaccine will get one by September. The math now is clear that uh, it's going to change, especially with the protocol on dosing. The National um, 
Advisory Committee on Immunization says if we switch to one dose and then four months to the second dose, 80% of Canadians over the age of 16 can get it by June. So can you track what the targets now, the target dates for everyone getting at least one shot are? Well, listen, certainly we're hopeful that we can move up the um, the date where everybody who wants to can have uh, have protection from a vaccine. But, uh, you know, obviously I, I like to be cautious and I, um, I would just say that there are still many variables that are beyond our control, as we've seen in the last couple of months. I mean, things can happen at the manufacturing uh, sites or at the manufacturing level, changes in manufacturing processes, uh, unanticipated challenges um, you know, with uh, a, ver a variety of different kinds of scenarios for pharmaceutical companies. But having said that, I mean, it is looking promising that people will get vaccinated earlier than we thought. We know a number of the provinces and territories are moving up their schedules as we speak. Okay, um, we've heard now Nova Scotia is going to offer a, a choice between if you're offered the AstraZeneca, which is apparently, you know, 62% effective, on the, well, then you could actually say, you know what, I'll take a pass. I'm going to go with the Pfizer or Moderna it might come later because it's 95% effective. Uh, that sends a signal that there's two standards, the gold standard, Pfizer and Moderna, and the other standard, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca, which is only in 60, 62 or 66 percent effective. What do you make of those choices and the message that sends? What I can say with confidence is that the effectiveness of all the vaccines is nearly 100% to protect against death from COVID-19. And so many experts will say, take the first vaccine that comes your way, because of course it protects you from dying right. of COVID-19. Right. And you know the effectiveness rate is speaking towards, uh, speaking about the clinical trials where uh, obviously under uh, you know very sort of strong supervision, uh, you know clinical settings and and um, you know smaller scale studies that indicated that some vaccines, you might still contract COVID, but it would be a milder version of the, of the disease. Yeah, so I just want people to know, they're 100% effective against death, maybe not against contracting the COVID. Uh, but this does go to, uh, let's call it COVID vaccine confusion. Why is there so much confusion about, is AstraZeneca safe for 65 and up? Health Canada said yes, not recommended by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. Uh, no one knows if it's safe to take doses four months apart. Uh, do you feel with so many different voices Canadians are hearing, there's frankly a heck of a lot of confusion. Can't the government have one centralized voice to be a little more clear on this? Well, we, we do have a centralized voice in terms of advice to provinces and territories on immunization, and that's NACI. The Health Canada regulators, of course, are, are, have a separate role, and their role is to make sure that uh, whatever we approve, whether it's vaccines, therapeutics, equipment, that it performs as the manufacturer says it does, that it's safe for Canadians, and in the case of vaccines, that they are effective as per the claims of the pharmaceutical company. Minister, now that we're beginning the mass vaccination moment, Moment. Uh, is the federal government visiting the idea, as European countries are, of a vaccine passport? Those who have the vaccine will get the passport to travel, to go out, and those that don't. Is that something that your government is, is open to? 
We're certainly working on the idea of vaccine passports with our G7 partners. I was on a call with my G7 health minister counterparts just a couple of weeks ago, and that is a very live issue, Evan. Of course, uh, uh, the IATA, the International Association of Transportation, um, is looking at uh, exactly that. What kind of evidence or documents do people have to provide in order to resume it? travel. This is something that the world is seized with. I know my colleague Omar Alhabra is also investigating and uh, we'll be coming back to Canadians as we understand more about the intentions of our counterparts internationally and as uh, as we understand more about uh, how that will unfold around the world. Bottom line is you're saying it's inevitable there's going to be some kind of vaccine passport. Are you, are you concerned about equity? Somebody who has to wait months for someone else to get, you know, a, a, the vaccination essentially gets front of the line status and it's kind of like there's a two-tier moment here. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say that I'm saying it's inevitable. I'm saying it's a very alive conversation internationally and, of course, always concerned about equity. We certainly don't want to see a two-tiered situation, but we also do know that uh, there are requirements to travel internationally uh, around disease prevention already. They already exist in some countries with some diseases. And, of course, COVID-19 presents a very significant right. challenge for international travel as we all race to try and protect against variants of concern concern and race to protect our citizens with immunization. So all, all I'm saying is that the government is fully in that space with our international partners. And uh, of course, Canada will be participating in those conversations as we should. I, I want to get to the controversy around these quarantine hotels. First of all, and I've spoken to some people who have been there, they've complained about long lines for reservation system. They've complained about uh, food not arriving, that you know they're paying a lot of money they're okay to stay in them. They're not complaining about having to do it. Uh, that's the rule. But once they're there, lack of security. There's been sexual assault allegations there. Um, how did it go so wrong? Why aren't these being run better? What we are doing right now is trying to limit the importation of the virus and track those variants. And as the virus changes and shifts, understand what the uh, risk that presents to Canadians. Now, having said that, uh, I wasn't exactly thrilled in the beginning days either with the uh, the way that the program unfolded. And I will say that we have had an extra uh, focus on making sure that we, we work out those kinks. And in fact, we have worked out many of those kinks. The average waiting time now is about 20 minutes on, uh, on the phone. Many hotels have moved to online booking. We're working closely with the uh, Canadian Hotel Association to uh, work out many of those wrinkles. And I want to thank all of the hoteliers and uh, and the association itself for being so, so uh, diligent and working on the concerns of people. But let me just keep focusing on the border question and the, because it's, it's very poignant with the arrival of the variants. December 22nd, a series of premiers asked for tougher border restrictions. Back then, you said only 1.3% of, for example, cases in Ontario had originated outside of the country. By January 29th, you've had these tougher border measures were finally taken. At what point between when you were saying, you know what, not a lot of cases are coming from the border and the quarantine measures and the testing that was finally established, at what point between these dates did the variants of concern take root? And was it because of the open border? So were you wrong about that? 
Well, listen, Evan, there'll always be an opportunity to look back and determine which measures resulted in what outcomes. But I can say that we've been adding layers of protection at the border and working with provinces and territories, as you know, to respond to concerns around importation. The importation, as we said then, is extremely low. Our data preliminarily suggests it still remains low. I, I got to leave it there. Uh, one year after the pandemic was declared, our health minister, um, Patty Heidi, thank you. Thanks so much, Evan. Great to chat again. All right, coming up on the program, vaccine confusion with four vaccines available. Why is there still so much confusion about how to take the vaccine? Are there two tiers of vaccines, the gold standard and the silver? We'll ask the Deputy Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, Dr. Howard New, that next. Stay right here with Question Period. There are now four safe and effective vaccines approved by independent regulators in Canada. We have agreements with all four companies making these doses, and we also have agreements with three additional companies for their potential vaccines. The good news, Canada has approved four vaccines. The latest, the Johnson & Johnson product, is a one-shot portable vaccine. All good. Canada expects to receive 10 million doses of those. The confusing news, it's only 66% effective compared to, say, 95% effective for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. So are there now really two tiers of vaccines emerging? And should Canada really be waiting four months between the first and second doses of all these other vaccines? Let's find out. Joining me now, Canada's Deputy Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Howard New. Uh, Great to have you on the program and look, four different vaccines. So Canada's arsenal has grown dramatically. This is all good news, but there's a lot of vaccine confusion. Uh, some people are saying, look, there's two tiers now. There's Pfizer and there's Moderna. They're 95%. I want those. I don't necessarily want the AstraZeneca or the new one, the Johnson & Johnson, which is one dose, but 66% effective. What do you say to folks who, who may start saying there's a two-tier reality with our vaccines? Yeah, well, I, bottom line is, you know, all of the approved vaccines in Canada are safe and effective. And, and the most importantly, uh, from the, the clinical trial data, they're all uh, very good at, uh, at preventing serious illness and death. You know, uh, not to get into all of the, you know, the figures and people are quoting, uh, you know, some of the data coming out of the clinical trials. Uh, I think for the average Canadian, including myself, I have no problem accepting whatever vaccines offered to me whenever it's my turn. I haven't even gotten my first dose yet because I don't qualify for one of those priority populations. But uh, when my turn comes, whatever vaccine they offer me, I'll take it. Okay, so jo let's talk about the new one, the Johnson & Johnson uh, product, 66% effective. But we saw with other uh, vaccines like AstraZeneca that there's that number that, you know, Health Canada's talking about, and then there's real-world studies, and it suddenly it seems to be more effective. And again, people are scratching their head. So what is it? So, for example, could these actually be more effective than people think? When we get into the real world and we actually start giving the vaccine to the real people, like, you know, on a, on a mass sort of population level, that's when you can measure what we call the effectiveness. So there's a difference between efficacy and effectiveness. Okay. And as you pointed out, uh, certainly in the UK, they've had uh, quite a, a number of, I'd say, months now in terms of actually rolling out the AstraZeneca vaccine in real world conditions. And now it looks like the, the actual effectiveness uh, is very good. 
even in, in, in older populations uh, compared to what might have been uh, sort of the results of, out of the clinical trials. So that's all very encouraging and that's great news. So it could be better than we hope. But there's also vaccine confusion again it seems in Canada, so you've got Health Canada saying, as an example, AstraZeneca is safe for those, uh, you know, and recommended for those 65 and over. And countries like France or Germany, they're saying, yeah. But then the National Advisory Council on Immunization says, we don't recommend it because there's no data. Why the discrepancy over the AstraZeneca vaccine? Okay, so, so maybe to break it down now, Health Canada as a regulator will actually look at the data that the manufacturer has submitted, again, from the clinical trials. And uh, depending on, uh, you know, the, the data that they receive, they're looking at, at the vaccines are sort of on a one-by-one -one basis, right? You know, for that specific vaccine, you know, does it meet, uh, meet our safety criteria? Does it meet our, you know, efficacy criteria and so on and so forth? And uh, I think, uh, bottom line, uh, all of the vaccines, I think no one would disagree. They're all safe. Now, our National Advisory Committee of Immunization, they're looking at it for not just as a sort of a, as the regulator, but also looking at it in comparison to real-world data, you know, as that continues to, right. to, to be accumulated, as well as also in, sort of in terms of the uh, suite of vaccines we have. So, here's one more issue, and it's been a very significant one. Uh, the issue of delaying first and second doses now, stretching that between to four months. Uh, obviously for the three two-dose vaccines, not for the Johnson & Johnson. Yes. Is there any data to support this, or is this basically an experiment based on the necessity to get as many first jabs in people's arms as possible for partial immunity? Uh, because, because, you know, you're hearing a lot of the pharmaceutical companies say, we don't know if it's still effective four months out. It's too long a period. Any data to back it up, or are we conducting a pretty, pretty uh, big experiment here? No, there's data to back it up. Uh, I think, obviously, speaking uh, from the manufacturer perspective, like I say, they're, they're basing it, obviously, on the clinical trial data, which was what was submitted to our regulators at Health Canada uh, for the approval of their vaccines. But now as we're accumulating uh, what we call real-world data, as I mentioned, uh, the experience in other countries like Israel, the UK, United States, and also what's happened in, uh, in, in Quebec and, and in British Columbia, that there's a very effective or a very high level of protection after just one okay. dose. Okay. The other part also is that uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, from the data we have to date, it also shows that the that the, the durability of the of the protection is longer lasting. Like we don't know, like you know, years from now, but certainly for the time we have the data for, it shows that it hasn't been a, a, a drop off, and therefore okay. that's why NASI has been uh, comfortable saying yes, we can extend the interval up to four months. The other part also I think that hasn't maybe been, um, how you say, uh, uh, put out there as much is that for the experts in vaccinology and immunology, it, it's actually uh, been shown with other vaccines that actually delaying the interval is actually beneficial. It actually helps in terms of boosting the immune response. Right. The first dose gives you that high level of protection and then that second uh, uh, dose gives you that booster effect to boost your immune system for that longer lasting immunity. And we've shown for other vaccines that, you know, a, a longer interval is actually a, a better in terms of your longer lasting immunity. So, so in that sense, I think it, 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 it's all good. And we'll obviously continue to monitor to the, monitor the data as it uh, becomes available. Let, let me just drill down on this first and second dose because 
you know, here this past week, we've, we've got the good news, uh, the, the Johnson & Johnson, but that's a one-shot vaccine, about 66% uh, effective. But, you know, you get Pfizer and Moderna up to 95% effective with two doses. Would Health Canada be open to mixing and matching? Get one dose of uh, Johnson & Johnson and then you get a, a Pfizer or take the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson. Are, you, is there, are there studies done on mixing and matching, pairing these vaccines together? Yeah, uh, as we speak, uh, that's exactly what's uh, happening in the UK right now in terms of this mixing and matching. Uh, certainly the current advice is that uh, when you start with, let's say, one type of vaccine, an mRNA, and a specific one being Pfizer, it's ideal to continue and finish uh, the second dose with the same uh, vaccine, same manufacturer. Uh, but uh, depending on the situation, if uh, uh, there really was, uh, you know, let's say uh, uh, that certain vaccine not available, then obviously you you could maybe uh, uh, use the other vaccine. But uh, I think uh, I think from a public health perspective, anyway, I think we're always open. Uh, the science continues to evolve. We look at uh, the evidence as uh, uh, other countries. Uh, uh, roll out their vaccines and maybe, uh, you know, data becomes available because uh, maybe by design or maybe uh, through uh, other factors, there's been a bit of mixing and matching. And so uh, what the UK has done, uh, my understanding is that they actually explicitly are, are, are studying the, the effects of this mix and match. And uh, certainly we're looking forward to, to seeing how the data uh, turns out and then seeing if that uh, obviously uh, uh, could be considered by, let's say, the regulators here in Canada. With the arrival of all these vaccines, you're seeing provinces ready to open. People are saying, okay, great, light at the end of the tunnel. You're, in your view, are, are we being hasty starting to reopen with the variants of concerns out there? Um, do you think Canadians should be careful uh, opening up too quickly now? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I think that uh, all of us, and I think uh, Dr. Tam, myself, and uh, uh, the chief medical officers of health as well, say yes, uh, even as the vaccination rolls out, we're still in the early uh, stages. And so we can't let go of the uh, proven public health measures, uh, you know, especially as, as you said, with the emergence of variants. Uh, you know, uh, look at look at the UK, you know, that they rolled out their vaccine, but then they had to go into a lockdown as well just because of the variants uh, uh, spreading very rapidly. Uh. Dr. New, I really appreciate your time today. Obviously, big, big news on the vaccine and, and your yeah. perspective really helpful. Thank you, sir. Okay, you're very welcome. All right, coming up, British success. Over 21 million people in the UK have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. How has the UK been able to roll it out so quickly while well, Canada lags far behind. What lessons could Canada learn from the UK experience? Well, the British vaccine minister, Nadim Zahawi, joins us next with some insight. Stay right here with Question Period. This is seriously encouraging. It shows the power of science. And what it means for you is that when the call comes, Get the jab. The evidence shows that it will protect you and protect others. Racing ahead, the United Kingdom has already administered more than 21 million first doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, outpacing Canada's 1.6 million first dose shots. Now, the ambitious vaccination campaign there shows no sign of slowing down. The UK has vowed to get a first dose to everyone over the age of 50 by mid-April, and all adults by the end of July, that's 53 million people. Much of the UK's success can be attributed to its domestic manufacturing capacity of the homegrown Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. But it's one thing to have the vaccines and it's a big different thing to get them into people's arms as we all know. 
So how is the UK able to vaccinate so many people so quickly? And will it be able to continue this pace? What are the takeaways for Canada's rollout strategies? Let's find out. Joining me now is the UK's Minister of Vaccine Deployment, Nadim Zahawi. Mr. Zahawi, uh, let's just start with how the UK got so many domestically uh, made vaccines done so quickly. How did you build up capacity so quickly? Because that seems key. So you're absolutely right. That is key. Uh, we took the decision very early on last year, not only to engage with the different vaccine candidates, the, the scientists, the manufacturers. We were the first country to engage with BioNTech, even before they had actually done their deal with Pfizer. And then when they did their deal with Pfizer, we were the first country to contract uh, with them as well, and the first country to approve their vaccine. We also took a risk, a risk to invest in vaccine manufacturing capacity in the United Kingdom before any of these vaccines uh, had uh, sort of you know, any data that would say that they would be uh, uh, efficacious, that they would be effective against the COVID-19 virus. So let me give you an example. With the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, not only did we fund the research, but we very quickly invested in manufacturing in Oxfordshire and in Braintree. So before you made that investment, and I know you, I know your past, you like risk and you like to make strategic risks, but did the UK had, how would you describe the capacity of the UK for domestic production before? How would you describe that? So we, we, we were not a country that had large scale vaccine production capability. Uh, just like we weren't a country that had large scale uh, production capability in PPE. We only could produce at the beginning of this pandemic about 2% of our PPE. We now produce over 70% of our PPE competitively. And we now produce 80% of our uh, vaccine for AstraZeneca. Let's go from uh, procurement and domestic capability to roll out because the logistical challenge are massive. And again, the UK has been roaring ahead on that. Uh, people have been able to book appointments. Uh, what were the biggest, the most impactful decisions you and your government made to get the jab into people's arms ASAP? So I think the most important thing was to have the NHS family effectively lead this. So uh, whether the hospital hubs, the uh, mass vaccination centers, or the primary care networks. Uh, but it's not just the NHS family. We integrated our armed forces. So 101 Logistics Brigade is integrated into the deployment program. We brought in uh, one of our big retailers, Boots and Superdrug. They have a distribution arm. So we asked them to come in and help with the distribution. DHL deliver the actual vaccine, what we call the pizza boxes, to the, the channels, the primary care networks, the hospital hubs, the vaccination uh, uh, centers, and pharmacies. We've got over 200 pharmacies vaccinating. That will double, at least double, in March as well. So we've built a deployment infrastructure. The UK, this is, hasn't all been good. Before the vaccine rollout, you know, 120,000 people died, 4 million, in fact. So, so, you know, it was a bit of a shambolic lead up until you guys got the vaccine. But there has now been uh, accusations against the UK of hoarding AstraZeneca, of vaccine nationalism. What do you say to that? 
I would say it's quite the opposite. So we took our responsibility very seriously from day one. Uh, Boris Johnson, our prime minister, uh, gave the vaccines task force two uh, priorities. The first is to find out which vaccines are going to work and make sure that we have either ordered them or manufacturing them in the UK. But the second and equally important priority he set out is to say you, we've got to help the world, which is why we were the first country to put £548 million pounds to COVAX. We're seeing last week the first AstraZeneca Oxford shipments landed in uh, Ghana, in Accra. Minister, candidly, Canada also is a contributor to COVAX, but Canada exercised its right to actually take some uh, doses of AstraZeneca from COVAX. I appreciate that Canada is certainly allowed to, but the primary purpose of COVAX is for low and middle income uh, countries. The UK has not taken any from the COVAX supply. Just candidly, was the UK surprised that Canada was the first G7 country to exercise that option? Is that, is that considered, as you would say in the UK, not on? No, uh, to be fair to Canada, COVAX from day one was set up uh, to deliver both uh, 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 priorities, both purposes, i.e. to make vaccines available uh, to low and middle income countries, but also to uh, countries like ours or, or Canada. Uh, and I think that was always in the remit. It wasn't a, a, a sort of a special uh, uh, condition or a special deal in any way. So uh, uh, I think... Um, uh, the, the Canadian government had to do what it needed to do, and it's within the design of COVAX to allow it to exactly do that uh, for, for uh, the countries that are, that are participating in COVAX. Now that we're moving out uh, of the vaccine drought, and you're, you can kind of see the, the light at the end of the tunnel here, is the UK considering, or will the UK give people vaccine passports? Those who have got the vaccinations will get it, so they can fly, travel, work, and those that haven't will have to wait. Are vaccine passports in the cards? So I'll, I'll answer your question in two parts. The first part is international travel. So we know, because we're already experiencing it here, the European countries are talking about it, Greece, Cyprus, uh, uh, Portugal now, that there will be a requirement for some form of vaccine passport or vaccine certification in the way they now require a pre-departure test certification. And our Secretary of Transport, Grant Shapps, is leaning in to lead that initiative globally so that we get the protocols right, so we have the ability uh, uh, to, for British citizens to take advantage of the, the however quick that uh, will happen uh, to be able to travel for business or for uh, leisure. Right. Uh, now, people are used to the yellow fever passports where you have to have a vaccine against yellow fever to travel to particular countries. So that's moving ahead at speed. We're, we're leaning into that. And, and I think that will happen uh, in terms of the, the deployment of technology reasonably quickly. Absolutely fascinating. Thanks for taking so much time. We really, really appreciate it and best of luck. Thank you so much. Great to see you. All right, coming up, a mess in the military. Allegations of inappropriate behavior at the highest levels. Who knew what when? Should the defense minister have acted earlier? The Scrum is next with special guest NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. Stay right here with Question Period. I did tell the minister what the allegation was. I reached into my pocket to show him the evidence I was holding and he pushed back from the table, said no, and I don't think we exchanged another word. 
So those were just some of the explosive allegations from the former military ombudsman Gary Walborn at a parliamentary committee last week. He says that back in March of 2018, he actually informed the Minister of Defence, Harjit Sajjan, about allegations against the then Chief of the Defence Staff, General Jonathan Vance. And then Walborn says Mr. Minister Sajjan ignored him and never pursued the complaints. Minister Sajjan disputes all this. He says he never got credible information, and that's the wrong portrayal. And the Prime Minister says he never heard of any allegations about any of this until the media reported this first just weeks ago. Remember, General Vance is now facing a parliamentary probe into allegations that he had an inappropriate sexual relationship with an officer under his command. General Vance denies the allegations. Your head might be spinning. Who knew what when? What needs to happen now? To talk about this, the arrival of the new vaccines and the timeline on that and what it means politically, the scrum is here. Joyce Napier is CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief. Marika Walsh is a political reporter with the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh. Good morning to everybody. Great to have you here. Let's start on the military issue. And Mr. Singh, I'm going to start with you. Um, stunning testimony, as I just said, from the former ombudsman about this. The Minister of Defense denies that he knew anything, denies that um, those allegations. What do you make of this? What has to happen now? What we're seeing, I think, Evan, is a, is a really clear pattern of behavior with the Liberal government and their failed vetting process. We can look at the Governor General. There was clear inf information that there was previous problems as, uh, as w in her role with staff. And then the, the massive issues that came up when she was Governor General. Now with the military, positions of, of great importance that are, were appointed by the Liberal government where there is evidence that there were some serious concerns that were raised and nothing was done and they were still appointed to positions of significance. Okay, I just want to say, there is another investigation into the current Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral McDonald, who was appointed by the Liberal, but actually General Vance was appointed by the Harper government. Just So this may be wider than you think. Marika, you've been reporting on this. This is kind of like a he said, he said right now. Um, what do you make of it, and what's the key questions you're asking right now, Marika Walsh? I think the key question is, is how is it that this wasn't, this didn't seem to go anywhere? How is it that despite this being flagged with the minister's office, with a very senior aide in the prime minister's office, that kind of this seemed to just stop, that this didn't seem to be pushed forward, and that my understanding is that the liberal government also extended General Vance's appointment to right. this top position. So I think it's very curious, and, and I think there needs to be more explanation as to why it wasn't possible to go further with this three years ago if so many people were told about it. Yeah, and, and Joyce, the opposition are asking that Minister Sajjan... Uh, reappear appear at the defense committee to ask questions about it again prime ministers backed him up on this meantime the military is in total chaos over all this what do you make of it first of all the the minister already appeared before the committee and said absolutely nothing um and 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 denied what the former ombudsman was saying then uh this week when the story on art mcdonald uh the admiral the admiral who replaced uh, jonathan vance stepped down voluntarily, again, the minister would say nothing, not when he knew what he knew. I thought, you know, this is a government that promised to be open and transparent. We are told, and I think that is a bogus uh, reason, that, well, you know, there's an investigation underway, so we can't say. Actually, you have a duty to tell the public 
and probably the people of the armed forces who are probably today quite demoralized when they look at their generals, the, the people they look up to, what did this man do that he had to right. step down and the public and the Canadian public knows nothing about? I don't think that that's fair and I don't think that that's right. All right, I should say, Mr. Minister Sajjan appeared on this program last Sunday. He declined again to appear with new developments this Sunday. Marika, let me just go to you on the vaccine timeline. Huge week in vaccines. Johnson & Johnson, the one-dose shot gets approved. Uh, millions more vaccines are coming uh, in the second quarter. Clearly, the timelines have moved with the change in dosage from the four-month uh, protocol now. There's a chance that 80% of Canadians 16 years and older will get the first shot by June. Um, that's a real big change. What, what's the fallout of that where, where opposition parties like Mr. Singh's have said, you know, Justin Trudeau has failed on this issue. He may not beat the timelines. Well, I think now we're seeing that the government is becoming increasingly bullish on the vaccine timelines and the millions more that we're seeing coming in are before we even start accounting for the deliveries of Johnson & Johnson's right. vaccine and AstraZeneca. So that could become even more accelerated, I'll say. And the question will then be how this is actually rolled out, how it's implemented, how fast provinces and territories are able to get those shots into people's arms. And that's, I think, where the rubber really hits the road now going forward when we're looking at things like Ontario, which has yet to set up its, its booking system, for example, for all these millions of vaccines that we're now seeing. Yeah, and Joyce, you know, six million by the end of the first quarter was promised. It's going to be more than eight million now. So so the, these timelines are getting beaten back here uh, pretty quickly and the, and the obligation will fall on the provinces. What do you make of all these changes? And, and politically, that's going to change things quite dramatically. Okay, I, I think we've got, uh, the jury is still out. I think we have to see how the rollout will go, how many doses will arrive, will there be any setbacks? Um, I think that, you know, you sort of can't count on it until you see it here and until it starts being, you know, sort of distributed to provinces and then provinces distributed to us, uh, basically. Um, look, the faster this happens, the better it works out, uh, the more possibility it, there is that we will be in an election campaign because I think that the Liberals have their eye on that ball. It's how many vaccines can we get out there? Will people be satisfied? How much will lives change? How, in, in what kind of mood will people be? And then you can bet that the Liberals will go to an election. Well, and, and Mr. Singh, it's going to fall on you because you've, you've told me on this show before that you will not vote against this budget that, that will trigger an election. But things may change. You know, if 80% of Canadians have at least one shot by June, the budget comes, it becomes a little more, I don't know, possible uh, to have an election. I know the opposition is unanimously against a spring election, uh, but does it change your calculation with all the legislation, all the money? There's a lot going on here. Is it not time for the Canadians to have a voice on one year of this pandemic? Well, really my focus is until everyone is vaccinated, until we get past that hurdle, I think our only priority needs to be getting the vaccine secured and also vaccination. And like Marika was saying, I don't think it's enough to just secure the dose. Uh, Canada and, and the federal government and Justin Trudeau also needs to do his part in helping with the actual vaccination, getting the vaccines into arms. We've seen some serious delays in Ontario, but we need to see an all hands on deck approach. Everyone needs to be a part of this, nationally mobilized so that we get everyone vaccinated. That's my singular uh, focus right now. And I don't believe it's the right thing to do 
to start gauging an election for the for Justin Trudeau to do that right. when he should be focused only on getting everyone vaccinated. Mr. Singh, first of all, thanks so much for being our special guest today. I really appreciate that. And Marika and Joyce are going to stick around for round two. All right, coming up, it's been one year since the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Can you imagine that? Living with the restrictions, lockdowns, the massive economic programs to keep people safe. How has the government handled the global crisis a year in? What are the political challenges ahead for them and for the opposition? The Scrum returns with CTV pollster Nick Nanos. Stay right here with Question Period. This week marks one year since the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. Can you believe it? It's been one year, and since then, everything has changed. Since then, more than 20,000 Canadians have lost their lives, most in long-term care homes. Then, strict quarantine and lockdown started. The borders eventually closed. Massive deficits ensued to support people and businesses. The long and controversial vaccine procurement, and now the rollout phase. But now, today, there's some hope. Four vaccines, as we've discussed today, have been approved. The latest on Friday, the one-dose Janssen vaccine. And has all of this altered the political landscape? With the first budget in nearly two years about to come, our party's getting ready for an election. What's changed? Let's bring back the scrum to find out. Joyce Napier from CTV News is back. The Globe and Mail's Marika Walsh is back. And, of course, our special guest for this round is CTV pollster and the president and CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. Uh, Nick, welcome uh, to the scrum and welcome back, everyone. L let's just start with you. Uh, the federal government has now moved out of the vaccine drought phase into the vaccine deluge phase. Um, so that may change things. What are the big net positives for them in going into the spring? And what remain the big political challenges as you look at the uh, political landscape? Well, the big challenge, at least for the government, is the fact that their message is the checks in the mail or the vaccines are in the mail, but they haven't arrived. There's a significant amount of anxiety out there. The Liberals have gone from in the fall being in majority territory to now being in minority territory. And people are frustrated especially when they see countries like the United States make significant headway. So, yes, there's positive news and people are hopeful, but those vaccines have to hit the ground or else there'll be political hell to pay for the Liberals. Yeah, and Marika, even though that's going to be provincial responsibility, that rollout, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, the voter uh, is blaming that proportionally. What, in your view, are the, the, the challenges for this government? and maybe the successes that they're facing a year after this pandemic was declared? I think they're, they're actually the challenge and the success is the same, and that's the vaccine. I think that it's really critical, the good news we saw last week, that we are getting more Pfizer shots earlier. And that's because as these variants of concern become more of a concern in Canada, it's really important to get these shots into the arms of the most vulnerable to make sure we prevent the most serious disease and the most serious outcomes, which is death. And so what we're going to see is that actually the federal government and the premiers are going to be rowing in the same direction on this. And that's, I think, one of the biggest changes of this pandemic from what we saw beforehand. They are both have the onus to ensure that these shots get delivered, get put into the arms of people as quickly as possible, and the political pressure is on both of them. I think you're right that you know voters don't really care who ultimately is responsible as long as they get it, and so who are they punishing at the polls? I think that we'll, we'll wait and see when those timings shake out. Yeah, Joyce, we'd seen the blame game, we've seen the cooperation game. Just uh, here we are a year in, what do you see as the challenges? What do you see as the net positives right now? Well, there are two sets of challenges. You know, they're the challenges of the, of the federal government 
uh, and those of the of the provincial. You know, uh, they're they're unfortunately for them completely you know tied together. So their destinies are kind of united. It doesn't matter to people if it is the provincial government that screws it up or the federal government. Um, so once the federal government brings them in, they've got to hope that the provincial government will do a good job in distributing this vaccine and will do a good job in informing people because we are getting so much information. Sometimes it's contradictory, so I think there's that will be their biggest challenge is to get the information out there and for people to understand what is going on. Yeah, vaccine confusion is a big uh, deal there, Nick. Obviously, there's going to be economic challenges as we're looking to the budget, uh, and that will be a confidence motion in a minority government. Uh, what are the challenge for the opposition parties, most of whom have said unanimously, we don't want a spring election right now, but one could be imminent if, for example, the vaccine timelines move up and most Canadians have one shot by June. Obviously, that puts things in play. Yeah, I think the politics basically on this changes week to week. That's what we've learned since the pandemic has started because it's been a roller coaster ride for everyone. But the fact of the matter is when it comes to the budget, the big question is, will the Liberals put a poison pill in the budget in order to provoke the New Democrats, for example, to vote against the budget and potentially trigger an election? So really, the fate of whether there's an election or not is firmly in the hands of the Liberals. If they do a stay-the-course budget that continues to pump stimulus, it's going to suggest that they don't want an election and are willing to kick the can. But watch out for some kind of orange, orange pill. Yeah, hmm. orange pill for the new Democrats that uh, could potentially uh, change things. Marika, challenges for the opposition as, look, nobody, we, we all know nobody says they want an election, but they're all getting ready for an election, as you know. What are their challenges? I think for the opposition, it's breaking through when so much focus is on the vaccine and on the premiers and the prime minister and what they're doing. It's harder and harder for the opposition to break through because they don't have a role to play in the rollout of the vaccines. And I think that's where the focus is going to be right now. There are some opportunities for them when the House returns, for example, more questions, more accountability about what happened and who knew what when with both Art McDonald and former General Vance. Um, but these are the questions the, the the opposition has had this challenge continuously in this pandemic of breaking through and that challenge persists. All right, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks to Nick, Joyce and Marika and all of you for joining us. But before we go, we do want to say a special thanks to our associate producer, Noah Richardson, who is leaving us for a new job in journalism. Noah has been a tireless part of our team, putting together the program that you enjoy. Noah, it's been a pleasure working with you. You are going to do great things. Good luck and thank you. That does it for question period this week. Parliament is back tomorrow. We're following all the news and I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV's Power Play. Take good care. We'll be back here in seven short days.